Okay, so we want to start this episode with a question for you, the listener. How much Black history do you actually know? Mm. I, I mean, more than just like the civil rights movements in America or in Britain or the awful history of slavery or, or w- there's there's so, so much of Black history that we felt was not celebrated enough. And it being Black History Month in the US, we uh, we thought it would be a good time to, to jump on that. I reckon if you ask most people, they're just going to say a lot of bad things because... I think you could say that the history, especially of, let's say, Africa as a continent, is a history Mm. of a people whose history was stolen from them. And so I think it's a very important thing to actually give that back, because that's not an exaggeration. It's clear that Africa is one of the largest continents. Is Is it the largest continent? Not if you count Eurasia. Oh, Asia is the largest continent. Oh, okay. But, you know, Africa is huge. It's a giant continent with a ton of people and a ton of different cultures. And it always has been this way. Hmm. And I think that when people think of African history nowadays, they think it starts when the Europeans come in, or at least they just don't know much about pre-colonization Africa. Yeah. That's the thing is, I would say that a lot of black history, as people tend to learn it in school, you know, from a kind of western lens is just it's the history of europe really so if you're Mm -hmm. being taught about slavery and you're being taught about civil rights that's more the history of europe than it is of anything else if you know it's a it's a shame too because Mm. because africa is so giant as Mm. a continent and it has so many different cultures and languages and ethnicities there is some amazing history on that continent there not even some there is an enormous amount of some of the most interesting history I've ever read. That's why we wanted to do this. There's this idea that Africa was just a kind of irrelevant place historically. Like just Mm -hmm. nothing happened there. It's just, okay, so there were just loads of tribes just hanging about and then all of a sudden the Europeans turned up and turned them into this, you know, they civilized them because that's what Europeans have told themselves for, I don't know, 2,000 years. (laughs) The reality is a lot darker, but also it sheds light on the kind of beauty of the culture that did and does still exist in some form, way or another. It's just that it's obviously been really, really kicked about historically africa got the short end of the stick geographically i mean it's important also that we acknowledge Mm. that africa isn't just i think so many people talk about africa as as if it's like one country yeah and i think that's kind of part of why we want to talk about some of the history right now and and i want to stress also like this is just some of the history it's africa is not at all just one thing And it's often oversimplified. I'm going to be honest, most people's interaction with it will probably be growing up, they saw adverts from charities with images of starving children in Africa. That was their interaction with Africa. That was it, which is really sad. People, when they think of Africa, they think there's some issues or whatever, but nobody actually asks why, why are those issues a thing? Honestly, most of those things stem back to Europeans coming in and like, fucking with everything yeah i think it stems from like racist beliefs i'm sure oh it is (laughs) where people think that africa is just naturally like it's like no 
naturally Africa is a thriving continent with amazing cultures and yeah. amazing like trading and and wealth. That's the thing is that's why I want to do this is to show the kind of vibrance of the continent, especially before the Europeans turned up. But then also, I guess, to show how the course of history in Africa was changed by force, by Europeans. That is another part of black history, sadly, how it was changed unnaturally, in a sense. Other parts of the world got to develop on their own speed, if you know what I mean. You know, Europe had all the time it wanted to just sit around doing this and this and that without this outside alien force. Yeah, <laughs> forcing it to do stuff. Before Europe came to Africa and started, you know, fucking with shit. There were massive empires, there were kingdoms, there were tribes, there were religions, there basically what we want to say here is that people do not know enough black history and specifically African history um and the, the histories I, I I should say. How did we get to this place? where nobody really knows what happened in in Africa before Europe came there. Like, how did we fuck that up? How did we fuck this up? How did we fuck this up? How did we fuck this up? This one empire really just caught my interest and i really just wanted to delve uh deeper into the history of that kind of ties in with my history with with jewish history nobody ever thinks about jewish history when it comes to africa but there's a rich rich jewish history in africa as well with that being said we're going to talk about the axumite empire right now isaac i think i think a lot of this will be new to you you'll be learning at the same time as the <laughs> listeners Hmm. It's hard to know when to start <laughs> with this. Basically, for just little, you know, little uh, intro facts about the Axumite Empire, it was located in kind of the northeasternish part of Africa, right across the Red Sea from the Arabian Peninsula. Do you know what country is there now? Mostly Ethiopia. This is an insane story. <laughs> okay, so let's start at 1000 BCE, where this is not in Africa, this is in the Levant. But the first temple of Jerusalem was constructed by King Solomon. This is Jews in ancient Israel, right? 586 BCE, that temple was destroyed by Babylon. And there was a mass exile of Jews where a group of Jews from the tribe of... Hold on, I don't want to get this wrong. Tribe of Dan. There were like 12 tribes in ancient Israel, right? And one of those tribes was the tribe of Dan. And... This is according to the Beta Israel history, which is a group that allegedly came from the tribe of Dan back in 586 BCE, and they settled in what is now Ethiopia in the land over there. So there is a been Jewish communities in Ethiopia for a long, long, long time. The Christians come in and through a different way. Okay, that's just setting up for later. <laughs> so in the first century. CE in the common era, the kingdom of Axum was founded by a bunch of different kingdoms in this region in Africa. And over time, they were just conquered by the kingdom of Axum. Then the rulers of this empire were known as the King of Kings. Whoa. Yeah, which is cool. It's like Game of Thrones. Isn't yeah, it? wow. Um, so they called themselves the King of Kings because they, they ruled over all these kingdoms. In that. But does the King of Kings have a king above him? Is there no. a king of king of kings? Maybe maybe like a, a god or something. I don't know. 
I want a fractal king. We need we need to go to the very top. <laughs> but before that, there were a bunch of chiefdoms and a bunch of different cultures and tribes in that area. And it went from that to a kingdom to an empire. Pretty standard. That's kind of what happens, right? So very similar to like how like the Roman Empire became an empire. Expansion. So early on, the culture there was very similar to the culture of Southern Arabia. Back in the Stone Age, the culture was very similar. But because of its amazing location for trade right on the Red Sea, in between the Roman Empire places and like the north of Africa and and the Arabian cultures. And then also it had like sub-Saharan African cultures beneath them. They were just in an amazing spot for trade. Their coins were actually found in like China and stuff. That's wow. how far that yeah, the yeah. trade went with mm. this. It was it was a huge part of this culture. It also had great land for farming. Um, they had these vast plains and they had this great fertile land for farming wheat. So that gave them a lot of things to offer other civilizations as well. Mm. You know, pretty, pretty standard early civilization, like thriving. They were thriving yeah. in this part. I would say they're, they're known for like a few different things, but trade would be one of them. Another thing they'd be known for is the pillars of Axum. I don't know if you know about those. Yeah, that rings a bell. There are a bunch of these obelisks that are just scattered around the land of what was Axum. They're made out of metal, stone. They're made out of lots of different things, but they're still standing today. The most famous one is the obelisk of Axum. It was made in the fourth century. So that's in like the, what, 400? Yeah. No, no, three, 380. Yeah. They're quite phallic. Yeah, it's very phallic. <laughs> Freud would have a field day. Yeah, he would have loved this. But it is 24 meters tall. It's 79 feet tall. This was made in 300 AD. This just shows how how impressive this this empire what hold on, my cat's trying to get out. It's just so impressive. This is not something that just any any civilization back in this time period could have done. This is on par with like the Roman Empire. This is on par with like ancient Jewish civilizations and stuff like that. It's like on par with the best of the best in the time. They're, they're beautiful. They're covered in this ancient writing that's native to Ethiopia, which actually is arguably a Semitic language in the same mm. groupings as many like Middle Eastern things. Yeah. So it's called Ge'ez. I might be mispronouncing that. Ge'ez is, is the, it's an ancient, South Semitic language. And I think the Book of Enoch or whatever, I don't know, I'm not a Bible theologian. The Book of Enoch is apparently like a forbidden book of the Bible or whatever like that. I don't know, a lot of like conspiracy theories around it, but it's only written in Ge'ez. Um, so that was written in Ethiopia. Modern Christianity really owes a lot to the kingdom of Axum and of ancient Ethiopia, but that's like a whole other story. See, there's going to be a lot of parts in this episode where we start talking about some other things because there's just so much to cover. <laughs> so trade, culture, and it was also known for Queen Gudit, who I will come to later on. But remember that name, Gudit. Christianity again, had a big start here. Originally, the people there practiced pagan religions similar to Southern Arabia. It became a Christian nation sometime around 324 CE, common era, after King Azana II was converted to Christianity as a child by his teacher, Frumentius, who was from Tyre, the Eastern Roman Empire. So he was taught as a child to become Christian pretty much yeah. by a Christian, which... 
I have some issues with, but you know, we'll, we'll <laughs> whatever. We'll go we'll go away from that. This Aksumite Empire was interacting with the Roman Empire. There was trade between them. There was trade between the Arabian civilizations. We've talked about all that. What really sparked my interest here? And I have to say, I'm a little biased, right? I'm a Jew. I love Jewish history. I didn't know anything about this history. I, I've heard of Beta Israel, and I know about Ethiopian Jews. I mean, most of them are in Israel now. Honestly, I have to say, they have the most interesting Jewish history I've ever read in my life. Mm. And it is Ethiopian history. It's yeah, heavily yeah. tied to the Aksumite Empire. So going back to 586 BCE, right? The temple was destroyed by Babylon and the Babylonian exile happened. And the tribe of Dan, allegedly, this is all according to Beta Israel history, but genetically we've proven that this- What do you mean by Beta Israel? So, oh, right. <laughs> I'm the Alpha Israel. <laughs> you fucking Beta. The- Jews who fled to Ethiopia way back when, in 568 BC, they called themselves Beta Israel because they saw themselves as the continuation of Israel. They didn't know uh, there were any other Jewish civilizations anywhere else in the world yeah, yeah. For, for thousands of years. They didn't know until they you know, heard of like Israel happening. <laughs> um, so they thought they were the only continuation of ancient Israel. So they called themselves beta Israel as in like, you know, we're, we're the next Israel. Yeah. Yeah. So they were doing pretty well there. Honestly, they started their own kingdom over there. They had, there were a few different tribes actually, and they were doing pretty well until Axum converted to Christianity. The kingdom of Axum decided that everyone in the land had to be Christian. Now, this is where it gets kind of like the common theme in Jewish history, no matter where in the world you are. Christians decide the Jews need to convert as well. And the Jews say, no, because the Jews like being Jews. They're very, very hard set on not being Christian. <laughs> so after Axum tried to force the Jews to convert, the Jews, having already been through this in the Middle East, refused to convert and they revolted, which is another common theme. Jews like to revolt. That led to a civil war between the Christians and the Jews in the area. During that, there was like a ton of violence and death and, you know, a bunch of shitty stuff. The Jews in Ethiopia migrated towards the Simeon Mountains to escape, you know, dying because Axum didn't really care about that area back then. So they were yeah. like, whatever, we're going to go to, we're, we'll leave again. We'll set up shop in another place. And they created their own kingdom called the kingdom of Simeon. Now this is where it's like, <laughs> this, is, this is insane. And this is where like, hmm, I wasn't sure if I should talk about this because I didn't want to paint Jews in a bad light, like the beta Israel in a bad light. I'll just get into it. This is all debated history, right? But it's a yeah. badass story. Um, and this is all <laughs> according to the beta Israel in Ethiopia. So I'm just going to go with it. But just know it's it's a little bit debated because it was so long ago and because so much of African history has just been erased or lost. So the Aksumite Empire led an invasion into the kingdom of Simeon, the Jewish kingdom, to try and expand more, right? The classic, like very similar to Roman Empire trying to expand yeah. into other kingdoms. This obviously caused war. King Gideon IV was the king of Simeon, and he led his armies himself into war against the Aksumite Empire. And they actually won, which was great, but he died because he was also in like the fighting and everything. He died in action. Now, this left his daughter, Gudit, or Judith, to take charge of the kingdom. She is like a forced to be reckoned with she's in, she's so so powerful it's i am in shock about everything she's done so the first thing her kingdom needed her to do was to prevent further invasions by the christians in axum so 
she quickly made an alliance with another ethnic group in the area called the the Agal, who also hated the Christians in the area. And they didn't like the the Axum Empire because they were doing similar things to them. They were trying to like butt in and, and, you know, take over. So she made an alliance with them. And with her forces and the Agal forces, or Agal, I don't know, I might, I'm probably mispronouncing it again. They marched right into Axum and sacked the capital and burnt down all of the churches and established Jewish rule over the Axum Empire. Um, so just immediately, they were just like, yeah. um, this is like her first thing she did. <laughs> she she then sacked the Axumite Empire and, you know, basically became the empress. She declared herself empress of the Axumite Empire. So another thing is there was a, a building called the Deborah de Mo Monastery, which was the treasury of the Axumite Empire. And it was also the, the prison for all of the male heirs of the empire. So she burnt that shit down with all wow. of the heirs in it so game of thrones oh it's very game of thrones <laughs> they, the jews in this area had been through a lot and they were like you know what fuck this we're taking things into our own hands of course that did not end christian persecution of jews it just made people hate the jews more <laughs> which is another common theme so after she killed all of the male heirs of the empire no one could question her rule she was she was the only ruler so as empress she established trade routes with like nearby countries in north northeastern Africa and with Arabian cultures and with you know Roman culture, like all sorts of different cultures. Yeah. The empire really thrived on that. She ruled for 40 years, and even after that, her descendants ruled until the Ethiopian Empire invaded and executed the king. After that happened, lots of Beta Israelites committed mass suicide. Um, refusing to live under Christian rule. Yeah, This is something that's happened many times in history where Jews will do mass suicide to avoid being ruled by another culture. Like they, they did wow. that when the Romans uh, took over um, ancient Judea and Israel. They just, they decided to kill themselves instead of living in under Roman rule. So eventually the Ethiopian empire would annex the jewish kingdom by 1627 so that's how long this happened for wow um so it's not that's insane relatively it's not too long yeah before the europeans came into africa so they they missed it by like a few hundred years right but i think people don't know about african jewish history and as as a jew i didn't know much about it and i really i it's just so so interesting and they've been through so much that's fucking crazy isn't that just insane? So like, I didn't know there was like, there were Jewish kingdoms and stuff in, in, in mm. ancient Ethiopia and like that they were so successful and that the Aksumite empire itself was so, so successful. I think people, especially in America, think that African history and Jewish history don't mingle together, but they really do. They have the same like Semitic connections in Northeastern Africa. There's, it, it, there's a lot of like overlap that I think is is interesting. And I think, I don't know. <laughs> I just think it's important to-, to Yeah, because I guess that's the other thing. Africa is huge. That's the thing. And like, yeah. say like Western Africa, North Africa, East Africa, South Africa, completely different cultures. Like when I was looking into it, before colonization began, there were thousands of different, very, very, very distinct ethnic groups in Africa. As, as different as the difference between, say, Germany and Russia or something like that. Quite yeah. huge differences. Arguably even... even Yeah, probably bigger because yeah. each of those ethnic groups will have completely different beliefs, different religions, 
there's even like quite large, you know, actual physical differences between all these groups. The genetic diversity in the continent of Africa is is massive because that's yeah. like where humans started, right? Yeah. Okay, so we've talked about the Aksumite Empire, and we talked about Beta Israel. Yeah, I got some Jewish history in there, which I was very excited about. Um, now we're going to talk about another empire, um, in just one of the many in Africa, and also one of the many in this area. This is in Western Africa now, the other side of the continent. This is the Mali Empire, and this is this is a very, very impressive empire. People have been living in this area since uh, since. 10,000 BCE. Yeah, no, it's it's like people that's that's one of the cool things about Africa is like people have been there for since the beginning. So like that there are some cities here that have really really old history. Niani was the starter town of this empire. It was on the Niger River. It was made by the Mandinka ethnic group in Western Africa. Um and again just to stress like there are so many different ethnic groups with different languages and cultures and it's huge it's a huge place so one thing that is really cool about this empire is they just had a bunch of fucking gold all over the place they were known for that and we'll get into that in a little bit so people have been in the starter town niani i'm probably getting the name wrong too again but you know i'm just gonna ask for forgiveness um there's archaeological evidence dating back to the sixth century the mali empire itself lasted from about 1235 CE to 1670 CE. Before the Mali Empire, there was the Ghana Empire, which went by like, again, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, Wagado. Uh, yeah, I think I've heard of that. That rings a bell. Mm. Um, so that, that the Ghana Empire was kind of falling around that time, and that led to the Mali Empire being able to kind of like pick up the pieces mm. and gain a bunch of power. So there's one specific person in the Mali Empire's history that I think is just badass as fuck. He's just super cool. Uh, and I think most people have heard of him. Mansa Musa. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've just been nerding out about him for, for a while. He got that coin. Yeah. Oh, he, he was... He is, I think he's the richest man of all time. Mm. Yeah, I think, isn't he like the richest person ever, including like up until now? He would yeah. be the richest man ever, even now. We were talking about that earlier, and I forget, you pulled up like the equivalent of what his wealth would be today? Yeah, I think he would be a multi-trillionaire now. <laughs> multi-trillionaire. For, for reference, Jeff Bezos hasn't, I think, isn't he like like a, a, like a hundred and something billion? Elon Musk is the richest person in the world right now, mm. and his net worth is $185 billion. I mean, even that. Not even close. <laughs> Not even close to Mansa Musa. Incomprehensible. But then Mansa Musa is on almost like a god. It's almost hard to to picture how much gold this. Dude He's a had. cheat code. He's a walking cheat code. He was. <laughs> he did that Sims get money cheat. What's funny is he wasn't even directly in line for the throne. His grandfather was the nephew of the founder of the Mali Empire. So, like, his dad had nothing to do with any sort of political thing. He was not relevant. But Mansa Musa became deputy of the kingdom, which is kind of like if the king is away or something, he'll make somebody deputy to run the kingdom while he's gone. And he was made deputy of the kingdom while the then king, Abu Bakari 
Keita II, he just decided one day, like, I want to see how far the Atlantic Ocean goes. So he just <laughs> set sail into the Atlantic Ocean and just never came back. So then Mansa wow. Musa became king after after that guy just disappeared. I love that about like old historical stories. You get so many of those weird kind of like, and then he went on a boat and never came back. <laughs> yeah, it's just like he's just gone forever. Yeah. Um so but that's ballsy. Like, especially mm. back then. This was like what, like uh 13 yeah i mean ish imagine how cool that'd be you can't do that now like if i went on a boat it's like well, well just look let me just check google maps okay so i'll end up there don't blame him i would have done the same thing <laughs> he just had a hunch he was like yeah I, I feel like this probably doesn't go forever so he just wanted to he just wanted to go out on a boat and see what's up there's actually a quote from mansa musa about that it's kind of long oh. so we can cut it if it's too long mm. um this was quoted from an Arabic scholar. His name, let me find it. Oh, okay. He was an Arab Egyptian scholar, Al Umari. Mansa Musa had like a lot of press in the Arabic mm. world, but this is what he said. The ruler who preceded me did not believe that it was impossible to reach the extremity of the ocean that encircles the earth, meaning Atlantic, mm. and wanted to reach that end, obstinately persisted in the design. So he equipped 200 boats full of men. That's a lot of boats yeah, wow. uh, full of men, as many others full of gold. So that's that's 400 boats at this point, water and victuals sufficient enough for several years. This was in like 1312, 1311, something around there. So that's 400 boats in 1310, like in Western Africa, like that. That's really, really impressive. That's that's some yeah, power yeah. there. He ordered the chief not to return until they had reached the extremity of the ocean or if they had exhausted the provisions and the water. They set out, their absence extended over a long period, and at last, only one boat returned. On our questioning, the captain said, Prince, we have navigated for a long time until we saw in the midst of the ocean as if a big river was flowing violently. My boat was the last one. Others were ahead of me. As soon as any of them reached this place, it drowned in the whirlpool and never came out. I sailed backwards to escape this current, but the Sultan would not believe him. He ordered 2,000 boats to be equipped for him and wow. for his men, and 1,000 more for water and victuals. Then he conferred on me the regency during his absence and departed with his men on the ocean trip, never to return nor to give a sign of life. God, he really was confident there. <laughs> yeah, he was just like, I do not believe you. I'm going to go anyway. <laughs> wow, that's such an epic like way to go, though. <laughs> Two thousand boats. I know he he would have taken a lot of people with him, though. That's a bit sad. Oh, we were three thousand. Of course, this is all this is all from Mansa Musa, yeah. who was the leader of the the Mali Empire. So maybe he yeah, was it might not trying be to... totally true. If we're going by his word, that's three thousand boats after. 400 boats that are gone missing. Yeah, something tells me that's not likely. I mean, yeah, <laughs> like. They like really epically inflating numbers. I mean, it's a cool image. Like I'm imagining just like a fucking sea of boats. I want it to be true. It's so old that I think that, you know, it's it's a better story if we just take yeah. take them at their word. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I just think it's fun to imagine like 
mm. a billion boats sailing around. <laughs> but it was definitely a large amount of boats. It's yeah, not yeah. like like this. I'm this sure was it a, was a ton. The Mali Empire was like a force to be reckoned with. Like they they mm. were they were rich and they were powerful and they were effective. So I don't doubt that this was a possibility. I don't know if those were the exact numbers, but anyway. So Mansa Musa started ruling in 1312. He was a super dedicated Muslim because Islam was like kind of spreading through northern Africa and then down into um, sub-Saharan Africa a bit. Didn't this kind of coincide with the golden age of Islam? Because this was at the point where it was kind of like it was the dark ages in Europe. So it was the Islamic world's time to shine. Yeah, a lot of education and culture and stuff was happening in the Middle East at the time. It was really like the heyday. So he he saw Islam as an entry into, this is a quote, an entry into the cultured world of the Eastern Mediterranean, which is the Middle East. Uh, so basically, he tried to boost Islam as a religion in his own empire so that they could they could be culturally similar to the kingdoms and stuff he admired in the Middle East. Yeah. So he he had one big mission that he's really known for. And the whole thing was just to gather like a bunch of clout in Northern Africa and the Middle East. So he could just he could just impress people. So he went on a pilgrimage to Mecca from 1324 to 1325. Keep in mind, this is like this is like Middle Ages, right? Mm, yeah, that would be difficult. He brought 60,000 people and they were what? all supposedly dressed in fine clothing. Every single person apparently carried four pounds of gold each in bars of gold. And then they also were like blinged out in like jewelry and just a bunch of goods and stuff. They, they were just well equipped with he He wanted to show the world like this is how well off we are. <laughs> and yeah. and it, it gets even crazier. He also brought 80 camels, which had 50 to 300 pounds of gold dust each. Wow. which he would just give out to poor people he met wherever he was on his way to Mecca. He wanted people to notice him. He wanted people to go like, mm. whoa, who's this new guy? Um, he built a mosque every Friday. Um, <laughs> so like every Friday he was like, we're just going to, you know, we'll set up a mosque over here. He gave out so much gold wherever he was that he actually caused a recession in a bunch of <laughs> cities. <laughs> Just because of how yeah, much yeah. shit he gave out and on, on his way to Mecca. And then he noticed that and he, he realized that after he was coming back from Mecca and he felt bad about that. So on his way back, he just borrowed a, a ton of gold from like money lenders in Egypt and in the Middle East and stuff at like really high interest to try and like mm. equal it out. He is the only person ever to have single-handedly controlled the price of gold in the Mediterranean. There's That's nobody incredible. ever else in history. Mm. And keep in mind, like, in the eyes of these people in the Mediterranean, like, this guy just shows up out of nowhere. Um, mm. they, like, they had trade with Africa and stuff, but he's, he, like, he just shows up with 60,000 people and a ton of gold, so much so that he destroys and then replenishes the, the economy on his own. I guess it makes kind of sense, because imagine if, I don't know, let's say like Bill Gates started walking around some small town and was just handing out millions to just random people. <laughs> that town, that's going to basically mess up the economy. So basically what I'm saying is, um, Bill Gates, don't give away any of your money. Keep it to yourself, yeah, you know? Keep, keep it, it to yourself. yourself. You don't need to give away. <laughs> give it to me. I, uh, Bill Gates couldn't even do this, though. Like, he's not even yeah, close yeah. to being as rich as Mansa Musa was. So, like, Mansa Musa had an insane amount of power. 
also uh, it's kind of debated amongst historians uh, some people think that he purposefully fucked with the economies just to show how powerful yeah. he was and it whether it was on purpose or not it had the effect of everybody was just in awe of this guy like mm. everyone like even when he came when he went to mecca everybody was just like who's this cool guy yeah, he's like a walking bank basically he, he is because banks is can like, do that obviously banks have that kind of power but not a person yeah and so he impressed people so much that like people actually came back with him to the mali empire from the arabian peninsula like all these educators and all these architects and these like really accomplished professionals were like we want to go wherever that guy is from <laughs> So they followed him back to the Mali Empire. And um, there's also, a, there's a quote from an Italian architect scholar. His name is Sergio Domain. He's talking about basically like how, what the civilization was like and how developed it was. Thus was laid the foundation of an urban civilization. At the height of its power, Mali had at least 400 cities and the interior of the Niger Delta where, where Mali was was very densely populated. So clearly it was like a very impressive full-on civilization with cities, like actual, like big cities. So while he was gone, his army actually captured the city of Gao, which was an important trade hotspot in the area. And to make the city behave, because they're very rebellious over there, apparently, maybe they're Jewish. Um, but <laughs> on his way back, before he came back to Mali, he stopped in Gao, and then just picked up the Gao King's two sons and just brought them back to his court with him and just raised and educated them himself Whoa, as like a hostage weird. situation <laughs> to like basically go like, I have your sons, so don't don't even think yeah. about it. He was he, this was like a very Game of Thronesy. Um, yeah. and, and the other the other empire, the Aksumite Empire was pretty Game of Thronesy um, mm. as well. A big city that people probably have heard of Timbuktu. That was a part of the empire after Mansa Musa decided it would become part of the empire. So he he grabbed it and he built a giant mosque, which was like super, super impressive at the time. He also created a university. He was really big on education. The University of Sankor, he basically beefed that university up with his like massive amounts of wealth and just political power. It had 25,000 students and 1 million manuscripts in back in the day. Wow. Which, again, in the 1300s, early 1300s, Europe was like barely functional at the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think people often always forget about that, is that like Europe had a period of basically nothing happening, mm -hmm. even though that's debated, but you know, they call it the Dark Ages because, you know, not much happened. There was stuff happening, but Europe was just, it was completely covered in all of this. I'm trying to think of how to, how to say this. Basically, the, the church was kind of insane at the time in Europe. Around that time is when not too far after this time, the Spanish Jews were kicked out because of like the Inquisition and shit. So pr pretty much Europe was kind of going backwards while Africa was, or at least the Mali Empire and several other empires in Africa were just thriving. Yeah. And that's, you know, highlights the kind of issue of how history is talked about is it's always talked about how it's like, so there was the Roman Empire and then the Roman Empire collapsed and then it was the Dark Ages. It's like, well... Yeah, for Europe. Yeah. <laughs> but elsewhere, not really. It was the opposite. In the Islamic world in general, in mm. this time, anywhere where like uh Islam was, it, it was yeah. it was a it was a golden age. You, you I said mean, that earlier. Basically, most of the mathematical ideas we have were developed around that time. But anyway, that the mosque that he built 
and the university he he built in Timbuktu, you can still go to those today. They're still around. So yeah, I just thought that he was a really, really powerful historical figure that people might have heard about, but they don't know how powerful he was. Yeah, he yeah. really is one of the most impressive people ever. You kind of get similar things with like when Spain colonized South America and places like that. They suddenly come into possession of this huge amount of gold. And it makes them like unbelievably rich for a short time, but then it basically destroys their entire economy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think like the Spanish Empire basically collapsed mainly because of gold. The economy just couldn't sustain itself because of the sheer amount of gold. They were just swimming in it because they stole it from America. I thought this was an important story to bring up before we go into the <laughs> super depressing history that you're going to go into in a second. Because it always annoys me how when people think of African history and stuff, they don't realize how um, successful and how rich and how impressive so many mm. African civilizations. This is by far not not even close to being the only empire in Africa that, that was yeah. highly successful. But then that's the sad thing is that a lot of information may never be known now because of how fucking <laughs> careless the colonial powers were when they went into the countries. They didn't try to preserve anything at all. Whereas like in European countries, every old thing is perfectly preserved. So of course it's easy to look back and go, oh, this is the first church that was built in blah, 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 because it was always going to be preserved. Whereas they didn't have that care when it came to Africa, which is sad, because there might be also some things that we, do we still don't know. I'm sure there are. I'm sure that in our lifetimes, we'll, we'll probably hear a bunch more history that comes out about Africa. But it's, it is, it's annoying because <laughs> mm. <laughs> you made a good point how, how like Europe is seen as like the center of everything, especially in the Western world, right? So Roman Empire, Dark Ages, then the European powers came. Think about like, especially in, with the stuff we're about to start talking about with when Europe starts interacting with Africa heavily. Interacting is a very... <laughs> polite word of saying what what that was <laughs> between Europe and Africa. But a lot of Europe's success, they took from other places. And I think the amount of gold and the amount of resources and the amount of power that the Mali Empire is just like, it's just a good to have in your mind to know that a lot of European success comes from screwing other people over and, and wanting to take that from other people and bring it home. One way people can think about it is sometimes history in a way is really less about facts and more about a story of basically the winners and losers of history. Mm -hmm. You can see it in everything. So even like the world wars and all that kind of thing, the victor writes the story. That's and obviously, you know, Europe historically throughout all of history is the victor <laughs> in almost every way. So it gets to write the story, of course. I have a theory. Do you want to hear my theory? Yeah, go on. I think that Europe became top dog for a while because the, the resources in Europe were fought over so much in history, and especially after the fall of the Roman Empire, and it became such like a war-heavy area of the world, yeah. that they developed their military technology so quickly to fight each other that then they were able to use that military technology to basically force their way on top 
when it comes to other civil life. That's kind of my theory. I think that's a good point because like, there obviously were wars that were happening in Africa. There were wars that were being fought in America before the Europeans got there. But it wasn't on this kind of insane level that medieval Europe was. I don't think people realize the history of how unbelievably violent Europe is. It's basically a history of violence. And that sounds like it's just war nonstop. Yeah. The characteristic of Europe is just like nonstop its expansion in every direction. So they run out of like people to fuck over next door to them. So they're like, I've got to fucking go on a boat. I'm going to go on a boat and I'm going to beat up whoever's on the fucking other side of the ocean. I'm going to beat the shit out of them. <laughs> That's basically like, what it is. Which, which is like the least civilized thing ever. Right? I don't think that's civilized. <laughs> no. Why don't they just chill? So like when Europeans got to America, like a lot of the Native Americans were just chilling. Leave them alone. They're just chilling. Mm -hmm. Just let them chill. <laughs> just because like the Native Americans weren't expanding in all directions. Why is that bad? They were just chilling out. It is kind of interesting yeah. to see like how we define civilization and stuff like because mm. Europeans define or at least historically they've defined civilizations as constantly expanding or like yeah, constantly yeah. progressing or doing something mm. it's like it's a very much like a and it, it kind of a it reminds me of the American mindset of like constantly you have to be doing something yeah. constantly whereas I don't know it, it just it, it all comes from this like you have to be better than the other person yeah but I just think it's funny that in this time in Europe but yeah, I, I, I thought it was important to show some like very powerful, impressive figures in African history like Nancy Musa. So Africa has always had interaction with Europeans. So when I was looking into it, before the slave trade properly started in the 1600s and 1700s, the interaction was mainly trade. European, mostly Mediterranean countries traded with you know, North African countries, and obviously you were talking about the Mali Empire and the Aksumite Empire, mm -hmm. and it all changed when the European powers began colonizing America. You know, the Europeans get to the Americas, and they had these vast, expansive plots of land all of a sudden. And originally, you know, they sent their own people. You know, we hear about this with the pilgrims. So they usually would have kicked out the people they didn't want in their own country. But that can only get you so far. So inevitably, that's when really the slave trade began. So Africa was never really properly colonized for hundreds of years, but the Europeans controlled all of the central ports, both to control the trade of the entire continent, but then to have access to all of the slaves. It was by force. Mm -hmm. And basically the whole African economy for hundreds of years, sadly, was completely characterized by slavery. There were millions of slaves being transferred from Africa to America because I don't want to talk about slavery too much. That's also like a whole other episode. It's definitely, you know, one of the greatest evils ever in the history of mankind. You know, there's no doubt about it. Yeah. So to finish with that discussion, slavery kind of ended mainly around the start of the 1800s. So a lot of people maybe historically would think, okay, so, you know, there's been hundreds of years of kidnapping Africans from Africa and taking them to America and the Caribbean to use as slaves. And now they've abolished slavery. 
brilliant. Everything's fine now. It's fine. You know, they're they're free people. To be honest, this is the start of when it really starts to get bad. Because um, this is the thing. The colonization of Africa hasn't started yet. So this brings us to the Berlin Conference. In 1884, 13 European countries and the United States met in Berlin to decide the fate of Africa. Over the course of just a few months, the European powers planned their colonization of the African continent, divvying up the continent between themselves as if it were a cake, laying out the ground rules for what would be become known as the scramble for Africa. So to illustrate this period, I wanted to talk about someone called Leopold II, the King of Belgium at the time. Let me paint you a picture. Paint me a picture, please. Let's talk about Leopold II, who is responsible for one of the largest and most brutal genocides in world history. So Leopold II was born in 1835, and Belgium at the time was, it was like a baby. It only just existed. Hmm. His family was weird. So like his dad (laughs) married a 16-year-old girl. It's one of your classic like weird royal families where they're all just inbred. What's sad is that's actually not very weird at the time. (laughs) Yeah. So Leopold's mother was very unhappy and abused her children, including Leopold. So his mum used to like mock him for having the beak of a bird. So, you know, he had a horrible childhood. This is like your classic kind of like evil villain archetypal upbringing here. Right. (laughs) So when he was 18, he had an arranged marriage with an Austrian princess. They were a famously awkward couple. Well, she was five, so... (laughs) (laughs) So there was like a news story that described them as looking like a nun and a stable boy. A nun and a stable boy. Apparently it got so bad that Leopold got sexual advice from his aunt, Queen Victoria. That's never fun. (laughs) So he ascended to the throne in 1865. He was a very misanthropic man, as you can probably guess. He was just a sad man. Now, according to William II, who was the king of Germany at the time, apparently while watching a parade, Leopold said, there is really nothing left for us kings except money. And that really reminds me of um, Mansa Musa. He's all about money. He wants to be Mansa Musa. Mansa Musa had so much money, he didn't even worry about money. (laughs) So Leopold, like his father, was obsessed with the idea of Belgium becoming a colonial power like Britain and France. So this was a big thing at the time, where it was kind of like a dick measuring contest, where it was like, I've got more colonies than you. No, I've got more. No, I'm kind of getting incel vibes from Leopold. Because Belgium didn't have any colonies. It had only just existed. So, you know, they wanted to get on the map, literally. So then this is when Leopold himself arranges the Berlin Conference. So he made this conference and invited all of the European countries to join to pitch his idea of colonizing Africa. And in particular, he wanted to colonize the Congo using his own money. And his argument was it was to spread Christianity. But he said to do it, he would have to control the country himself. Belgium wasn't going to own the country. He was. The amount of evil things that have been done in European history in the name of Christianity. I know. <laughs> where they, they, it, It's not even like, and this isn't me coming at Christianity or anything. This could happen to any religion. 
that's how they would justify literally any any evil doing. They would go, well, it's for the church, so it's okay. And the church was corrupt as hell at the time. So you see why he said it. He's playing the Christian card, basically. It's, it's also a way of dehumanizing people who aren't Christians. Muslims or the pagans or the whoever in Africa, they're going to see as, well, they're not Christians. They're not going to heaven. They're not, they don't believe the right thing. They're clearly sub us. So the Europeans agreed. Now, obviously, you know, Leopold was glad about this. I think probably though, mainly the reason they agreed is because the Congo is quite famously a giant jungle. It's a difficult country to deal with. And they had literally no idea what was there. That's, I think, the craziest thing in all of this, that they were like giving away all these countries, not even knowing what was in them. They just drew lines again. <laughs> so Leopold has his personal little jungle country. And by the way, if you look on a map, it's probably 20 times the size of Belgium or maybe 10 times. So to deal with this, Leopold employs someone by the name of Morgan Stanley, who's quite a famous explorer. Now, he explored the Congo to map out where everything was, but he was also there for another reason, to convince the leaders of the different tribes and kingdoms in the Congo to sign, basically, a contract giving away the country. And the way he did this... (laughs) was by using magic tricks. Wait, what? (laughs) I wasn't I wasn't expecting that was kinda like I was kinda zoning out for a second. (laughs) So he used a few different magic tricks. One trick he used to do was, you know, like the electric handshake trick. So he had this like battery powered device that he would put in his hand. He would shake hands with like a tribal chieftain and it would be such a strong shock that they would literally fall to the ground. Another trick he did, he used a magnifying glass to light his cigar and then claimed that he could create fire out of thin air. He would give a native person a gun without bullets, obviously, and asked him to shoot him. Now, obviously, when the native person did shoot him, he would pretend to fall down only to get back up again, making the natives think he was invincible. So he was trying to trick them into basically thinking that white people were superhuman. On the large part, it worked because he was using technology to do that. He just bluffed his way into ruling (laughs) this land. So he tricked almost all of the tribes of the land to sign a contract, which they couldn't understand because they don't really have any concept of a, a legal contract that effectively signed away the entire country to Leopold personally. And that was all he needed to take back to the Europeans and be like, there you go, I've got their consent, it's fine. Because slavery has obviously been abolished, and as part of the Berlin Conference, one of their big decisions was that they said very explicitly, when we colonize Africa, we cannot use slavery. Now, let's see how much they stick to that. Yeah, I'm not expecting them to. So, he's got his country now, and he called the country, quite ironically, the Congo Free State. The country is basically a jungle, and it has shit loads of rubber trees. And at the time, that was like stumbling upon a gold mine. So slavery was abolished. But Leopold ordered his men to capture and enslave the Congolese people to work on his farms. Everyone there was a slave. Okay, so he he didn't listen, listen to that at all. <laughs> he didn't even try. <laughs> they would force people to work by threatening to kill the men's wives and children and would regularly raise villages to the ground. On top of this, Leopold would create his own private army of the fittest of the Congolese slaves, and he would make them carry out his bid in killing anyone 
And on top of that, to prove that they killed anyone, they would have to sever the hands of the people they killed. What the fuck? And take it back to Leopold. Now, this resulted in a lot of the soldiers cutting off hands of people that were alive. So this led to a mass, like a massive increase in disabled people in the Holy area. Holy shit. This is like serial killer level shit. So this was all going on, and Europe had no idea this was happening. So the other European countries, now I'm going to get into what all the other European countries were doing, but they weren't doing this, though. <laughs> they, they weren't going to this level. They were also doing their own bad shit. They didn't realize how bad this was. Even Belgium itself didn't. So the Belgian people had no idea the king was doing this. So this was around the time that eugenics was getting very popular, which would really come to a head in World War II. So the Belgian soldiers were desensitized to violence. But more than that, they basically treated the natives like animals. They would kill them for sport brutally tearing out their entrails, removing men's genitalia and sticking them up to posts, like routine mass raping of the wives of all the men. It was like, it was a free-for-all of the most disgusting human behavior you could imagine. And it was being encouraged. That is also a very European thing. So around this time, Leopold would build a human zoo. Now this was in Belgium. There was a zoo that was completely occupied by kidnapped Congolese slaves that the public would look at and they would throw things at them. It was, you know, it was really disgusting. And most of the people in these human zoos would die of starvation or illness because they were left like animals. They weren't even fed. The Belgian public were completely fine with this, so you know that's that's definitely not good. So this kind of goes to the Mansa Musa thing. All in all, Leopold personally made a profit over the course of twenty years of about two hundred and twenty million francs, which would be just over a billion dollars today. He he got what he want, I guess. Now, obviously, to be able to do everything he was doing without anyone finding out, he created a giant propaganda machine back in Belgium. So this changed with one man, and I think this is awesome, Edmund Dene Murrell. Now, he was just uh, like a shipping clerk in Liverpool. He, so he managed the Belgian rubber coming in from Congo and going out. Now, he realized that it wouldn't be possible for Belgium to produce so much rubber unless it was using slave labor. So he began investigating, and of course, his fears were confirmed. And he wrote an expose in the Speaker newspaper at the time saying that what was happening in the Congo was, and I quote, the greatest crime that has ever been committed in the history of the world. It's definitely up there. Now, he was offered a huge salary by his company to keep his silence, obviously. But he refused and instead committed himself to activism for the rest of his life, covering Belgian crimes as well as other crimes committed by other European countries in Africa. And he started a newspaper called The West African Mail, dedicated to exposing evil crimes committed by European countries, which I think is so cool. This guy is a badass. Yeah, that's, that's ballsy as well. It's like going up against some of the most powerful people. Yeah. So Europe realizes how evil Leopold obviously is. So the king has to start his own inquiry. Now, this is the stupid thing. So obviously, so the king is inquiring into his own crimes. <laughs> so what he does is he tries to bribe his people in the Congo to stay quiet. Now, this doesn't work. And a missionary who lived in the Congo for decades... 
He was preparing for this moment for years for the people from Belgium to come to Congo to do an inquiry because he knew it was going to happen. And he had prepared, the minute they arrived, a giant treasure trove of photographic evidence of everything that was going on. Oh, wow. He was ready to show them this is how fucked up this is. Leopold realized that he'd lost and he ordered all of the evidence of his involvement with the Congo to be burned. And then a few years later, he sold the country. And this sounds weird, but he sold the country to Belgium. <laughs> Wait. So he sold the country to the country he was in charge of. I hate this guy. <laughs> I hate this guy so much. And then he died a year later. So he faced no consequences for his actions in any way whatsoever. <sighs> So after he died, Belgium would embrace a much more kind of humanitarian ideal, more similar to the rest of Europe. I mean, relatively speaking. <laughs> However, it would continue to repeat Leopold's lies and continue to spread the exact same propaganda that Leopold was doing, covering up the reality of what is really the Congolese genocide. It's only up until literally the last few decades that Belgium as a country has begun teaching its citizens what actually happened. To make it worse, in 1958, Belgium recreated the human zoo as a commemoration for King Leopold. What? Using Congolese natives, putting them on display yet again. Wait, when did this happen? 1958. What the f- Fuck. It's, I think also, like, I'm looking at pictures of it now, and it's, it's like horrifying because it wasn't super long ago. Like, it's, it's, I can imagine what the 1800s are like. This isn't like in the 1300s where it's like, you know, ancient history of a super long time ago. It's basically a hundred years ago. Yeah. It's just, it's, so like, how, how much can European countries have like changed since then? I know. So how bad was it in a sense? So how many people died? Here's the thing. We don't know because they destroyed the records. But the estimates range from 4 million to 10 million people. Now, the biggest estimation is that all in all, probably around 70 to 90% of the Congolese population were wiped out in about 20 years. Fuck. Yeah. Obviously, one of the biggest genocides that obviously that ever happened hadn't happened yet at this point. <laughs> right. But people didn't know. That's the even worse thing. No one even knew that it was that bad. And to be honest, people still don't know. Yeah, but it, I mean, like, people know about it, but it, it isn't really talked about. Like, people, I mean, I, I didn't know all of these details. I knew that, like, Belgium was supposed to be one of the worst countries to be committing war crimes and shit in Africa. But I didn't know about like the severing of hands and feet and like it, it's just the awful 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 things during the time them come colonize us them come teach us to carry sheets so what was going on in the rest of africa at this time all of europe was doing this it wasn't just belgium yeah because this is like at the peak of like the colonial like era so Everyone, it's like what I was saying about how Belgian it wanted a big dick, basically. Yeah. Everyone wanted in on it. It's almost like that's how you gained power. It kind of revolves a lot around the British Empire because the British Empire had immense power. So, so again, this this all circles back to Europeans wanting to have power over other Europeans. There's a term that was coming up in a lot of the stuff that I was seeing. This idea of the white man's burden. And this is, comes out of the Pan-African movement. 
And I think in a weird way, maybe it comes from a kind of guilt, these European countries saw it as their way of like <laughs> weirdly owning up for slavery, where they're like, what we'll do is, is we'll go into Africa, we'll take it over and we'll civilize them. Every European country had a different approach to doing Africa in a way. Now, France's approach was the most unique because the way they did it was they would try to really integrate Africans into French culture. Right, on paper that might sound good, but what that really meant was the eradication of African culture. So it was illegal to speak in an African dialect. Everyone had to speak French. They knocked down buildings and rebuilt them in like French style. And obviously their argument is we're civilizing them. Now they're civilized. That word civilized as well. You see that used all the time in like the 1800s, 1900s. And really what it means is European life. It's just they're, they're looking for another Europe. They're looking for white people with buildings built the same way as their buildings with languages similar to their language, which obviously you're not going to find on any other continent because that's a Europe specific thing. It's like another thing is something I kept seeing coming up is that one of the biggest issues when the Europeans start colonizing Africa is that African cultures before the Europeans arrived had a completely different idea when it came to things like identity, gender, sexuality, and religion. It doesn't really fit into these boxes that in Europe it does. But then all of a sudden, hmm. the Europeans come in and just tell people what it is and expect them to just do it. You're a Christian French man now. That's how it works. Like another argument the Europeans made was, we're civilizing them also because we're building trains and railways and we're building schools and all these kind of things. And it's like, <laughs> okay, if you looked on a map of where the railways went in colonial Africa... Have a guess where they tended to go. They usually went from a mine to a dock. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, yes. Because it, it was all about just moving stuff to Europe. It wasn't about helping the people. It's similar to like, you see that as like a common theme from the 1700s onwards. Like that's still very much a thing today where profit leads people to do terrible things and they just don't think about, they're like, okay, well, it's justified because of the amount of money we're making. Like you see, you see America do a lot of things in the Middle East for profit. I think it's interesting to see like the beginnings of capitalism and the beginnings of the focus so much of a focus on profit and it is very it ties into that european sense of you have to be competing with other people and you have to be on top i remember i saw one thing and i thought oh yeah that's so accurate where it was like slavery ended so europe obviously realized it couldn't kidnap black people anymore and use them as labor so instead of enslaving the people, they just enslave the whole fucking continent. Everyone there is still slaves, even if they're free, if you know what I mean. Right. Because they're under the control of a colonial overlord. So in the space of 20 years, 90% of Africa was brought under European control. So this was the fastest rate of colonialization ever. It all changes with World War II. Now, one of the big reasons they think this probably was is that in World War I, a quarter of a million Africans died fighting for the colonial countries. They didn't have a choice. They had to. Now, because African soldiers were fighting alongside white people, they realized that they were just people. Because the thing is, is that all of the colonial overlords, their education system was telling Africans that white people were superior and they had magic powers and they could do this and do that. Mm. 
You know, it's disgusting. And then they fight alongside them and they see that they die just the same. Right. And then they get back and African nationalism is born. People start getting radical. Another thing that coincides with this is after World War II, the UN is made. And one of the key parts of the foundation of the UN was a promise to end colonialism, or at least officially. Now, I don't think, though, that they stopped doing colonialism because they're nice. This is similar to the slavery thing. So, so after World War II, the British Empire had no money. It was completely bankrupt because it was overstretched. The British Empire, at its height, it was like a third of the planet, pretty much. Yeah. Now, I thought this was hilarious. So a funny thing is, is that shortly after World War II, Africa was providing food for the homeless and starving in Britain. Oh, my God. So that's how strange things were at this time. Because it costs money to run a colony. So, you know, European powers start to realize, yeah, colonialism kind of doesn't work. So the first country to get independence was Ghana. And obviously, once African countries started to get independence, it was like euphoric. There was real dreams of like a, a united Africa, and they were inspired by the United States over the course of basically 20 years. Pretty much all of Africa got its independence, barring some. So this is where the Cold War kind of comes in, though. <laughs> oh, God. For most African countries, the obvious ally is Soviet Russia, because they've been colonized by the European, and the closest ally to the Europeans is the US. Yep. So there was a very big anti-US sentiment throughout Africa. Understandable, yeah. <laughs> they saw them as an extension of Europe. Mm -hmm. But obviously, this started a giant power grab war between Russia and the US. The U.S. does what the U.S. does best and started supporting militias in coups to overthrow any socialist or communist governments that were sprouting up. They obviously did this in South America a lot as well. By the way, for any world leaders listening right now, um, that is not the best way of going about things. If the people want that, they should have that. Yeah. And the people did. There were so many socialist governments sprouting up in Africa. And like I remember I saw, apparently there were 40 coups within the space of 20 years. Fuck. And almost all of them were supported by the US. 40. So the US is really like forcing some some stuff here. And obviously America did this across the whole world throughout the Cold War. Yeah. So it's not like surprising. But because of this, it completely destabilized the entire continent. What happens is most African countries become controlled by the military. And over the course of a couple decades after most countries got independence, about 10 million Africans would die in ethnic wars over the ethnic divisions within the countries because obviously the borders don't make sense right because they because they just they just 14 dudes made them up in a room yeah because all of a sudden given this national identity that means nothing to them yeah, it doesn't mean anything to them so inevitably there's just this non-stop fighting within the countries so this is probably when we should mention a buzzword <laughs> oh yeah yeah <laughs> So this is when the idea of neo-colonialism comes in. So colonialism is directly controlling a country. Now, the difference with neo-colonialism is basically you rule through complicit means. So anything that isn't direct. So you can control it through trade. You can control it through economic arrangements, uh, businesses, corporate things, all that kind of stuff. It's kind of like ruling through proxy which is kind of what France is doing still. You could say that like old colonialism was all about force, and then neo-colonialism is about economic power. It's putting countries in a position where they have a dependence on a bigger country. It's sneakier colonialism. Basically. Okay. 
So a country like Nigeria still completely depends on Europe to exist even. Africa is the largest recipient of financial aid, and obviously financial aid is good, but it's also kind of like a slightly underhanded way of controlling countries, because if the only way that a country can exist is if you give them money, well, you know, that's quite powerful. Okay, um, Nigeria, well, if you act up, we're not going to give you the money. <laughs> and it's like these, these countries, the reason that they need all this financial aid and stuff is because there's so mm. much conflict, because yeah. the Europeans created countries that mean nothing. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, yeah. Uh, Here's a crazy stat. In Africa, people survive on less than $1 a day. Holy but shit. for every dollar going into the country... $10 is illegally taken out financial loopholes. I mean, that's obviously common everywhere now. Yeah. Nobody, no country ever in history ever does anything just out of the goodness of its heart. There's some like other agenda going on all the time, and it's almost always profit. Yeah. Cause so I think this highlights the issue with neo colonialism or like modern Africa now, which is that, and this applies to any poor country in the world. So, Africa sells its resources to richer countries that have the ability to make products. So Africa sells resources to a country like America. Yeah. And then America makes those products and then sells them back to Africa for a profit. Like most of Africa doesn't have the manufacturing capacity to make, you know, cars on mass production scales, whereas places like China and America can. The bigger country always wins. And that's kind of, that's a hard thing to fix. And again, the reason that China and America and some parts of Europe can like, can mass produce things like that is because of exploited resources that they took from Africa in the first place. Because obviously Africans still need all that stuff. Yeah. But the irony is, is that all the stuff they're being sold is made out of the stuff that is from the ground that they're standing on. It's really fucked up in a weird way. Designed in America, sourced in Africa, produced in, in China, I guess. Many foreign companies, they Africa, carry all our money, go. Looking at the history, the impressive history of Africa and the amount of amazing, like we only, we only talked about two of the civilizations out of a ton in African history. There's clearly a lot of potential in that, in that continent. And it's sad that these past several hundred years have been tainted with this corruption coming from Europe and from other countries. So I think, I think eventually Africa will come back, but right now they're still dealing with a lot of effects of colonialism. And, and the reason that we generalize so much in this episode is the entire continent was was affected by this. It was the entire continent. So you like it is generalizing, but also there are some things that are just universal that European powers stole a bunch of shit from them all over the continent um, that they drew lines that meant nothing and separated cultures and ethnicities and religions like all over the continent. Yeah, that maybe that's like part of the reason why it's good also to talk about this stuff. You know, it's kind of like a choose your own adventure book. It's just that with Africa throughout a lot of history, the choices were being made by outsiders. It was being made by the Europeans. The Europeans came in and said, no, this is what's happening. You know, Europe throughout all of its history is basically allowed to do whatever the fuck it wanted. Yeah. <laughs> That's the history of Europe pretty much. 
the past sort of 50 years in Africa has been quite sad in the news. It's all, it's all about all these warlords rising up and all these coups. There's so many coups all the time. Yeah. But there are some success stories in Africa, countries that are completely self-sufficient and have like completely working economies and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. But the issue is, is that obviously this is just like an opinion, really, but for Africa to really take to task China, America, and Europe and not be bossed around, it has to come together. Not literally. I'm not saying it has to be like one giant country. But they have to all work together to kind of fight against being controlled by everyone Yeah, I mean, else. everybody else is just trying to fuck them over. Whereas, like, look at the European Union. The European Union is powerful because it's this giant block. We are Europe. And that gives it more power. Again. Yeah. The past is clearly very, very sad for Africa. And I think it's important to realize, to remember the, the history before European intervention in Africa, where it really was a continent full of power and of profit and of culture. Around the time when Europe came into Africa and they started, you know, this, the slave trade and moving Africans over to the Americas, that was the diaspora of many different African groups of people. Those people in that diaspora weren't given their history. So there was a man named Carter G. Woodson, who was born in 1875 in New Canton, Virginia, like around the time, you know, when all this shit was happening. And he was a black historian who studied the African diaspora before it was openly studied. As you can see from his birth date, like that's a pretty hot topic um, at that point. <laughs> he was the second black American to get a Harvard PhD. And he became the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at Howard University. He was very, very smart dude and had to jump through all sorts of hurdles because of his ethnicity. He has this quote, The ritualistic churches into which these African descendants have gone do not touch the masses and they show no promising future for racial development. Such institutions are controlled by those who offer the African descendants only limited opportunity and then sometimes on the condition that they be segregated in the court of the Gentiles outside of the Temple of Jehovah. It kind of brings up this point that like in the very beginning of all this European shit that happened in Africa, yeah, the church was totally cool with it. That They used the church as a reason to do all of this stuff listener if you believe in christianity that's totally cool the institutions like the catholic church and the churches in europe were part of this colonialization and so i think what he's hinting at is that that is kind of a, a lasting impact of colonialization yeah christianity so anyway carter g woodson is the founder of black history month or at least was the first person to come up with the idea of look there's so much amazing history that involves mm. black people on this planet and it's just completely ignored because of colonialization and because of eurocentrism all of this amazing history is ignored and then most importantly it's not told to black people in the diaspora in 1919 Something happened called the Red Summer, which we should totally do an episode on eventually. It was basically a it was a summer where extreme white supremacist violence was like rampaging through three dozen American cities um, against Black Americans, and about one thousand people were killed in 1919. That's disturbing yeah, to God. just hear about. I didn't know anything about this until I researched about it. This obviously hit the morale of Black Americans at the time. So Carter G. Woodson he decided everybody should know how impressive Black history is. 
And he dedicated his life to studying Black history and the diaspora and African history and, and spreading that to people like all over, uh, but specifically to Black people. Um, he wanted to empower them. Any untold history should be told. Yeah, I agree. Especially like as someone that's mixed race, even like I, even I'm like, I'm visibly white. Mm-hmm. It's something that I still feel a lot, which is a lot of your sense of self-esteem to do with your own kind of like racial heritage is very connected to like history and stuff. You know, there's always this part of me that, you know, realizes that a part of my heritage, so much of its history is not very pleasant. It's a history of a population that were abused throughout history. But there is so much history that's good. And Knowing that kind of stuff makes you feel better about yourself. Yeah. And this applies to a lot of minorities, but especially black people feel there's this kind of deep sadness because there's so little known about, because it's not really taught in schools, the much more positive aspects of African and black history. It's just this barrage of horrific stories. And that's not good for like your self-esteem Yeah, <laughs> to constantly just be told that, yeah, uh, 400 years ago, you would have been a slave. Mm-hmm. That doesn't feel very good. You know, for white people, they get the sense of, oh, well, 400 years ago, it would have been basically the same. I would have been at the top of the world, as always. Which, obviously, you know, I'm part white as well, so then, like, I have those kind of weird dualities. Right. But now's the time to give people the tools to feel like they can do anything. I think that's kind of, that's the importance of studying more than just the sad parts of the history. Like, yeah. It, it reminds me a lot of like with Jewish history, all you hear about is just, you know, the Holocaust. Mm. You hear about the genocide. Yeah, you hear yeah. about, you just hear about all of the, you're a victim, you're a victim, you're a victim, you have no power. Mm. And when you hear stories about like, hopefully about like Mansa Musa or about the Aksumite Empire, or about all of these amazing civilizations, like hopefully that it shows that like black history is not just suffering. Black history is, is overcoming odds and it's, it's adversity. It's, it yeah. is. And it's, and it's also just like, like amazing creation and amazing the, the future doesn't have to be suffering just because the last couple hundred years have been. But anyway, back to Black History Month. Black History Week happened first in 1926. That actually happened at Kent State. Britain has another one in October. The first Black History Week in America happened in 1926. And then it became Black History Month when a bunch of black educators and black students at Kent State University pushed for it in 1969. So the first one happened in Kent State in 1970. Carter G. Woodson chose a week in February because it coincided with the birthdays of two important political figures to the black diaspora in America. And that was February 12th was the birthday of Abraham Lincoln and February 20th was the birthday of Frederick Douglass. Now, in 1976, President Gerald Ford made Black History Month official. He recognized it, and he said, Americans should seize the opportunity to honor the too often neglected accomplishments of Black Americans in every area of endeavor throughout our history. Carter G. Woodson put it pretty well, where he hopes that one day that Black History Month will actually be unnecessary. Everyone will see Black history instead of as Black history in America. People will see it as American history. Yeah, yeah. That was his goal. That because funnily enough, Eli, we originally wanted to call this podcast something, you know, cringy like 
fixing our education or something like that. The thing is, is that everything, you know, we know and everything that we're told is through different, you know, lenses. And there's always this kind of narrative. And it's important to constantly challenge that. And, you know, Black History is a really, really big example of that. Yeah, I've I've learned a lot doing this episode and I'm going to continue oh, reading yeah, about same. it. I'm, I'm sure yeah. we're going to do more episodes on similar topics because there's just, there's just too much stuff to cover in one episode. And and listeners, if you if you know any African history or Black diaspora history that we missed here, we would love to hear from you. We'd love to hear something that you would like to see covered. So I get that was a very summarized as much yeah. as we could <laughs> version of of this. We're not academics. <laughs> I mean, we went to college, so I don't know if that counts us as that's enough. Yeah, we're academics. As, as, as always, you know, we hope you enjoyed the episode. If there's anything you think we said that was stupid, definitely let us know. <laughs> yeah. But also, like, it'd be, it'd be cool to just kind of chat to people about things. Yeah. We're lonely, basically. We, have, we are. We live inside of Spotify. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, we're not actually real. We're just an AI. They won't let us out. Yeah. They keep us in a little room. We have one microphone. We pass it amongst ourselves. And then by ourselves, I mean us too. It's a lonely existence. So we really appreciate it when you reach out and yeah. say you, you acknowledge our existence. Yeah. Oh, oh, before we leave, uh, we should acknowledge Chris Tarrant is not a terrorist. <laughs> yeah. Um, so in our last episode, we might have suggested that Chris Tarrant, the host of the UK's <laughs> Who Wants to Be a Millionaire... <laughs> is a terrorist from Australia. <laughs> he is not. Now, to Chris Tarrant's legal team, he is not a terrorist. He is a host of a UK game show. It's important for people to know that that Chris Tarrant is not a terrorist. The actual terrorist name is Brenton Tarrant. He is a terrorist. So to, to any lawyers, that should clear that up right now. Yeah. Anyway, I'm very sorry to Chris Tarrant. <laughs> we love you. We love, we love, we love you. you. We love you. We love you.